I invite you to check out CuriousApes.com, an artistic, philosophical, and intellectual meeting place to reflect and discuss the state of humanity and the cutting-edge discoveries that could alter the paradigm of the human condition, all with the goal of promoting humanism and self-actualization. So check out Curious Apes, and you'll be happy you did. Whether you've read the books or at least seen the 1951 Disney classic, Lewis Carroll's tale of Alice in Her Wonderland paint curious pictures of an off-kilter, alternative reality. A peculiar world where up might mean down and big and small might not mean anything at all. When we journey through to the other side of our looking glass, it represents an expedition into the unknown, the unexplainable, the unimaginable. A place where all the rules have changed. A foreign place where, perhaps, there are no longer any rules at all. But yet somehow we find a way to survive. One Rhode Island man pinwheeled through his own looking glass and learned to survive in a strange world for 30 years, until just recently when he resurfaced again. It was probably a beautiful day because it was creeping up on autumn in New England. On that day in 1985, Russell Yates strode into the Warwick Police Department and did something no parent ever wants to conceive of. He filled out a missing persons report for his two daughters. Kimberly was three and a half, little Kelly just 10 months. His estranged wife, Elaine, who did not have custody rights, had taken off the two little girls. The missing child case made national news and was even profiled on America's Most Wanted. Russell held out hope feared the worst as the years waxed on. The fugitive Yates family was sighted across the country from Florida to Colorado, but every path police went down ended in a dead end. Russell Yates surely began to wonder if he'd ever find his daughters, if they were even still alive. But they were, and they remained on the run for some time. Elaine had managed to change her name, as well as both of her daughters. They were now the Waldbergs, and the woman formerly known as Elaine Yates, now Liana Waldberg, kept her girls in hiding throughout their childhood. It's likely they never knew a thing about their father. Then just two days before Christmas in 2016, police received an anonymous tip, and the 31-year-old cold case came back to life. So there it was, on that afternoon, an afternoon three decades in the making that Russell Yates was finally greeted by detectives on his doorstep, a moment that he'd been waiting for, for an entire lifetime. By means of that tip, social media stalking, and court records, state police finally tracked down and arrested Elaine Yates in Houston. Authorities also located and spoke to the two daughters, now both in their 30s, and put them in touch with their long-lost father. So for Russell Yates, a man whose world was so violently turned upside down so long ago, suddenly found his world turned right side out again, as he finally rediscovered a whole new world, a world he now shared with his two long lost little girls. This time on the StoryCast, Tales of Journeys Through the Looking Glass.
Chapter 1. We're all mad here. My name is Belinda. I originally am from Seattle, and I now live in Wrexham in North Wales. I've lived there for four and a half years. I use the word expat, expatriate, because it sounded cooler and hipper. But I, when it comes down to it, I'm an immigrant. In the truest sense of the word, I've moved and redefined my home nation from one to the other. Um, I still align very closely with a lot of American values. America is very important to me. Um, but my home, my roots are being built in another country. So immigrant, actually, in the truest sense of the word, is how I define myself, which is really weird. Because when you think of immigrant, you think of, like, you know, the boats, the shit, like, the give me your tired, your poor. That's what I think of when I think immigrant. And now I've gone full circle and I've gone back to Europe. So it's a weird title. I think to have a million dollar or million pound question. My reason why I live in Wales is my husband um, is originally from Wales and we met in a bar uh, in New York and we hit it off and I gave him my business card and we went into a long distance relationship and then we got married and I moved to Wales. I abbreviated that quite a lot. <laughs> in, in, um, in the midst of that was like my visa process and legality and the bureaucracy of moving to the to because everyone has this idea of moving abroad as this like very romantic idea but what most people don't realize is there's a lot of steps to legally do that and it's really expensive and it's really time consuming so um that was probably like a nine-month process yeah, so in June 2016, so just this past summer, um, the British population, the British public, they voted on a very, very simple question. Should the United Kingdom leave the EU? Yes or no? And it, it came back at, I don't remember, but it was an overwhelming majority said, yes, we should leave. So Brexit is this vote to say, we're going to leave. We're going to believe the block of, I think it's 27 other nations, and we're going to go single. We're going to go on our own. Uh, and I think the aftermath of that vote was really surprising to a lot of people, to, um, to everyone across the political spectrum. No one actually thought that it would happen. Um, and I think people are still trying to figure out what it's going to mean on a day-to-day -day basis on a long term because people are so ingrained within the EU that to imagine to not be a part of it is very difficult to comprehend. Now, I'll be really honest, my husband voted to leave. I gave him a really hard time about it because I think his vote was in fear, but his reasoning was um, to be a part of the EU, so all 27 countries, however many there are, to be a part of the EU block, you have to essentially send subsidies back into Brussels, where, where the EU is at, where the EU is located. So everyone pitches into this pot, um, and what they were saying is, well, heck, if the EU doesn't, if the UK doesn't send money to the EU, we can keep all that money and we can fund the roads and education and the NHS or the health system and we can keep the infrastructure really strong for our own country rather than um, funding other programs for other countries. That's what their thought process was. Um, 
So I think that's why a lot of people voted to leave. That's probably one of the big campaigns. Another reason why people, another big reason why people voted to leave, and that's fear or misunderstanding on um, immigration um, between EU member parties. So if you, so just to explain, if you are a citizen of an EU nation, so Italy or France or Spain or Portugal or Poland, so any of the 28 countries, you can have free movement. So it'd just be like us going from Washington to Oregon or Idaho and live and work and buy a house. No big deal. Um, and what happens is some of the countries that have a higher um, or more uh, maybe robust economy or better um, social programs, like the UK, have a lot of con- uh, you know immigrants or EU nationals coming to, to settle um, and pulling resources from the UK rather than going to British citizens. So there's a lot of disparity in that. And I believe there's a lot of fear in uh, EU immigrants draining resources or what have you. And that was another reason why people voted to leave, to stop that from happening and put a, a, a real cap on the EU immigration. You know, the UK is an island upon itself in the Atlantic Ocean with a whole bunch of countries to one side and a whole bunch of water on the other. And it's stronger with stronger alliances. Um, and you've got to be kidding yourself if you think that Canada is going to be the best ally when France and Italy and, you know, all these other countries are right geographically at your door. So you, we, <laughs> there are no rules. The European Union was formed following World War II. It was an initial block of countries to say, I have your back, you have mine, we're going to work together, we're going to have great trade, we're going to, you know, allow people to move between our borders to build our economy. But what happens when one of the core members of that union says, we don't even want to try to make it work anymore? Every rule that was written, every rule that was negotiated, everything that has been worked upon has just dissolved. The structure, the trust between the number nations is is dissolving. And there's a lot of fear behind that. There's a lot of unknown behind that. There's a lot of we have this. I believe there's a lot of like, I'll say racism behind it. Some countries are better than others. Some countries have more money than others. Um, I think it's going to be a very interesting time for the United Kingdom um, over the next 12 to 18 months. Um, for me personally, it doesn't impact my visa uh, because I'm a non-EU immigrant. Um, so my visa status is the same. It remains the same legally. I think it will impact you know, what the towns look like and who lives there. And people might go back to their home countries. People might return back to Poland. They might not feel welcomed anymore. There are stories of racism immediately following the Brexit of people in Birmingham and London saying, get out to to people who've lived here their whole lives to get out. I mean, and that's, people are better than that. You know, so it's things like that where you have that fear of how will people be receptive to one another. Um, I haven't had anything like that, but you hear those stories and that is, that's there. Uh, You know, as a 35-year-old white woman, no one seems to be pissed off that I'm taking a UK job. And I'll say that, like, no one is having an issue with it because I'm American and I'm white. But if I was from another country or another ethnicity, would it be an issue? Possibly. Actually, more than likely, it would. I had to take a life in the UK test to prove that I understood, you know, the days and ins and outs. And the questions on it were ridiculous. It wasn't a question about being a good citizen. It was an English proficiency test. 
And I sat in a room with other non-EU immigrants and one woman sat next to me. She, I can't remember, maybe Nambia. It was her eighth time taking this test. Eighth time, 50 pounds a test. Her husband had passed it and she was with her baby and she's trying to settle her life. And I appreciate what she's trying to do, but she was getting flustered. It wasn't a test about how to assimilate as a citizen. It was, do you understand what a double negative in a sentence means? And that's not fair. That's not a way to screen if people are going to be good. And so for me, I'm, I'm hypersensitive about it because I'm very well aware. I've gotten very lucky that where I work and where I sit and where I live, um, it, it doesn't put people off a bit. But I think because of the color of my skin, I'm able to have a bit. And the, because of my origins of my national, my original country of being American, I probably can slide a little rather than people being offended that I'm taking a job. There's a lot of tension in the UK um, and there's a lot of, I think, racial unrest of who deserves to be where they are and why and to prove what they're doing there. Someone non-EU, we're all in the same kind of boat of you're there legally. It's the EU immigrants who are from the bloc, the other countries who could be very scared of, you know, or very threatened or very afraid of, you know, if they're from Poland or Romania to say, I don't feel safe anymore. I feel like I need to leave um, because it, it actually is becoming a quite tense environment and verbally threatening. There are stories of people verbally threatening on the tube in London. There are stories of people being physically and verbally threatening in different cities around the country. These are people who were born in the UK. These are people who have been here their whole lives. Their families immigrated here, <laughs> you know, and, and but they don't feel like they, they're not, they don't belong because they might have a different passport. So that for me, it makes me really sad. You know, I'm watching that and it makes me, I, I feel very empathetic for that because they've grown their life there. They've taken a massive risk to move, to be where they are and to grow. And they've contributed, they pay taxes, you know, a lot of the, you know, they go to work on and on. And for someone to say, well, you don't belong here because you're from another country within the European Union and we're, we decide to leave and now you aren't good enough to be here. Things like that, it just, it, it's, it's concerning. I think there is a major, major miss in the storytelling of what people get from the subsidies back. Yeah, we, there's a lot of money that's sent, but a lot of money comes back to the UK um, to revitalize the economy. And now they're going to, that, that's not going to be there anymore. Um, so I think it'll be a really interesting observation, an interesting process. No one's ever done it before. There's no rules. So the prime minister is making it up as she goes. Literally, they don't, there's no rule book for leaving. I, I guess, how does it make you feel? Maybe frustratingly hopeful. Because the day after Brexit, or the day of Brexit, when the results came back, everyone was in really big shock. And then that's when everyone started communicating and talking about what they were really thinking. And I think you know, the difference between the Brits and the Americans is the Brits are going to be very reserved. They don't politically like protest. They don't do that. And so when they really communicate about it, they really mean it. Versus Americans will stand on a corner for anything. So I think there is that underlying to make it work. 
to make things better um, and make things fair. So, but it's going to be frustrating and things are going to be done, you know, toes are going to be stepped on, but, uh, you know, as a non-citizen, I don't have a voice. So that's the frustrating part is I don't have a voice until that happens. Um, and then you have to be, you have to be hopeful. If you're not, there's no fucking point. Like if you're not hopeful, then what, how do you get out of bed in the morning? So, but I'm hopeful that there are good people who will work really hard to make things in a right direction, even if Brexit comes comes together. Maybe we're the good people. You don't know, you know? The good people don't have to be in a position of power. I think they're good people. I, yeah, you, I, I have to. Otherwise, I just couldn't. I couldn't. I have to. So, yeah, I believe that there are people who are going to fight and ask the politicians really tough questions and, and ask why Brexit's happening and why the trade negotiations are going in the direction they are and why uh, immigration is, is happening. And, and I that's that's... It doesn't have to be someone in a real position. It can be anybody. But yeah, I think the good people are out there. But it's going to be a really interesting discussion because no one knows how this is going to little, like, literally settle, like the dust to settle. No one will know. So, frustratingly hopeful. <laughs>
Well then, I'll just take coffee. How many shots? Ian fired back. Roger leaned in. Beg your pardon, son? Your latte. Single or double? Roger leaned back into his chair, studying the child. No, just coffee. Just plain coffee? Ian recanted. Just plain coffee. Black, Roger affirmed. Ian's eyes rolled just a bit before he lurched into action. Roger investigated a short stack of magazines resting nearby. Team Pop. Fast Times. Inked. Where's the paper? Roger offered up. Ian flipped over a chip mug and poured away. Don't get it anymore. You don't get the paper? Roger implored. Ian overfilled the mug, sending coffee splashing down the side of the mug. Shit! Ian exclaimed. Roger recoiled. Ian blotted at the spill with his greasy bar towel. Roger folded his arms in protest. So, no paper. How do you get the news then? Ian didn't look up. Google, Twitter, Insta, whatever, man. Sir. Roger took a sip from his coffee and puckered a bit. At last, he swallowed. So, need a menu? No. Special's a Chipotle breakfast burrito. Just the check, Roger inserted. Suddenly, a duo of well-put-together young women arrived at the bar, capturing Ian's full attention. Ian looked up at Roger finally, as he managed another sip of coffee. Uh, a 375, then. Roger coughed on his drink. For a cup of Joe? Joe's not here either, Ian replied, distracted. Roger scooted his bar stool back with another screech and gleamed at Ian carefully. The girls took notice of Roger's intent stare, and so did Ian, who returned a vacant, confused frown. Roger sighed, pulling out his billfold and selecting four crisp dollar bills. He placed them out on the counter, side by side. We're out of coins, Ian apologized. Suddenly from the jukebox, hard metal music pounded into the atmosphere, as selected by the man with the lip ring. Roger studied Ian carefully. Sliding his mug forward, he quickly clutched his wooden cane and rose to his feet. He opened his mouth to speak. If you happen to see Dolores, tell her Roger says hello. The girls giggled. Ian smirked. Yeah, sure man, right on. Roger marched ahead with his cane toward the front door, adorned with both push and pull signs. As he pushed through, the bell dang. Roger stood and inspected the passersby in the busy street. An ill-kempt man drummed away expertly on plastic buckets for tips. College kids puffed discreetly on a blunt. A trio of skateboarders weaved haphazardly between people and knocked over a metal garbage can. Roger strode deliberately to the toppled trash can and nudged it back upright with his wooden cane. The corners of his lips turned up approvingly. Resting both hands on his cane, Roger peered down the city block. A bright yellow Corvette raced past, fishtailing a bit as it rounded the corner. Overhead, the chop-chopping of a helicopter's rotors littered the sky. Roger's eyes lifted up toward the heavens, squinting through the bright sunlight. As his eyes closed tight, he took a deep cleansing breath and turned to stroll down an adjacent alleyway. Down the cozy old cobblestone line walk he trekked, overshadowed by tall brick buildings to each side. All at once, his steady march forward slowed, his cane planting itself to a stop in a mossy crack. Roger's eyes had caught something just as he passed it. Something curious. He shifted his position and leaned in toward the dirty brick wall to his right, where protruding out from the brick and mortar at waist height level was a long black handle, maybe the length of a broomstick. He slowly lifted his cane and gave the strange object a nudge, 
It budged just a bit, into the tall slit it disappeared into. The object wasn't a handle at all. It appeared to be some sort of a lever, and it was in the up position. Roger peered up the brick building wall, finding nothing but story after story of alternating brick that climbed to the roof. He lifted a hand and reached out for the protrusion, but froze, reconsidering. Finally, he placed his fingertips gingerly on the smoothly polished, well-fashioned wooden lever. They don't make them like this anymore. He grasped the end tightly and felt for resistance. It was nice and tight. He choked up on his grip a bit and gave it a little elbow grease. The lever gave just a tad. Looking over his shoulder, Roger found himself alone in this strange alley with this strange lever in this strange world. He clutched on tightly with one hand and placed his cane against the side of the brick building. Placing both hands firmly now upon the lever, he positioned his shoulders just so to leverage his strength. And then, with one steady heave, he advanced the lever downward, driving it down toward the ground. He continued pressing the lever's path all the way down into its final down position. It was as if everything was the same, but at the same time, would never be the same again. Roger peered at his hands. The color had left. His skin, and his final shirt, and the brick, and the ground, and the sky, and everything around him had turned grayscale. Shades of black and white and every gray imaginable painted this new world. From beyond the alley suddenly came screams and car screeches, yelling in terror, sirens, and then more screaming, more sirens. The world and everything it knew had turned completely black and white. Roger removed his hands from the lever and stood upright, taller than ever before. A curled lip turned into a smile, which gave way to a chuckle, and then laughter that rebounded and reverberated down the alleyway. Kicking over his cane, he retrieved the handkerchief from his front shirt pocket, dabbed at his nose, and carefully refolded it, returning it to its pocket. And then, with one foot in front of the other, Roger strode forward with a new gait, journeying off into his simple, familiar, grayscale world. Chapter 3, Come to the End, Then Stop. This song, Forged by Fire, is the fifth track in our Season 2 album. It tells the story of rediscovering where you are, how you got there, and what's next. And the full album is all yours when you check out support.storycastpodcast.com. And I've been so 
fire So why can't I Now sometimes my blood boils at night And sometimes it's always holding me upright And it's true I never should have ended up in your sight But take a look in my eyes and say that it's not right Cause it's so right Well I went towards the fire I've been thorned and mired Now I've been forged by fire I came out the other side Well I've been low and higher And I've been sold by liars But I've been forged by fire So why can't I? But sometimes you wonder what things could have been and your hands can't quite remember to pretend But it's clear exactly where this goes in the end Cause when we close our eyes every night, every night It floods back again Well I went towards the fire I've been thorned and mired Now I've been forged by fire And I came out the other side Well I've been low and higher And I've been sold by liars But I've been forged by fire so why can't I? If I'll be forged by fire You'll be forged by fire And we'll be forged by fire By fire By fire The StoryCast is written and produced by myself. I tweet at Russell Silva. This week you heard music from the musical Mandela's, Rafter, Juliana Barwick, Arvo Part, Dustin O'Halloran, Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, Rhonda Mackert, Hammock, and myself. The StoryCast continues the last day of February with another chapter of life that tells the story of us through a common thread. So until next time, think, feel, and wonder a little bit more. The StoryCast is supported by you every time you click on our Amazon banner and shop. So head over to StoryCastPodcast.com and click or bookmark our Amazon ad. And we get a kickback on every order you make every time. Simple as that. 
Thanks.